week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 1974, Barry Hoban won Ghent Wevelgem, becoming only the second British rider to win one of cycling's classics. Hoban had been racing at the top level for 10 years and had tasted great success at various races. He had won two stages of the Vuelta España and an impressive six stages at the Tour de France. But in the classics, he had never hit the big time and not for the want of trying. Hoban had amassed podium places at Paris-Roubaix, Paris-Tour and Liège-Bastogne-Liège and had also finished fifth at the Tour of Flanders but he had yet to taste victory at a big one-day race. In 1974, Hoban was 34 years old and very much nearing the end of his career. He was riding for the Gan Mercier team, as he had done for the past three years. The team was built around Raymond Poulidor at his quest to finally win the Tour de France. Although Hoban would form an integral part of the Tour de France squad, the classics were also very much his focus on a team which also harboured Dutchman Cease Baal, who had just won the Tour of Flanders, and a young Jerry Knietemann, who would go on to win a classic of his own later that same year at Amstel Gold. The 1974 Ghent Wevelgem took place on a bright spring day with little or no wind. Many attacks came early on, including one from Hoban's teammate Baal, along with other big names including Eddie Merckx, Franz Verbeek and Roger de Vlaminck. But it wasn't until they climbed the Kemmelberg for the second time that the winning move was formed. It consisted of 17 riders, which included most of the big names. Merckx, Verbeek and Vlamink were all there, as were Eric LeMond, Herman Van Springle, Walter Godefroot, Freddie Martins and Hoban himself. Hoban described how hard it was staying with such a formidable group going over the bergs of Belgium. I suffered during this one, I can tell you, because I'm not yet in top form. On the climbs, especially on the Kemmelberg, it was like being on the end of a piece of elastic. I was dropped, got back on, dropped and got back on, and so it went. Fortunately, there were no mad attacks at the time. The pace was certainly fast, but any attempts were soon sat on. If anyone had been able to go it alone, I would probably have been left. Despite a number of kamikaze attacks in the closing kilometres, the 17-man group stayed together until the finish, where Hoban used his best weapon, his finishing sprint, to beat the biggest names in world cycling. He said, It was just the kind of sprint I like, 15 to 20 strong. I hate big bunch sprints. Remember, I've had three kids at home. Swartz started it with 500 metres to go, jumping hard, and Tabak went after him like a rocket. But then Laman and Merckx looked likely winners, flat out side by side, and I was behind them. I was wondering how I could get by them when suddenly, goodness knows why, they separated. The door was open for me and I went through. I have waited 10 years for this. It feels wonderful. Hoban would go on to win a further two stages at the Tour de France later in his career, bringing his tally to eight, which is a British record that stood until the arrival of the young sprint sensation Mark Cavendish. Welcome to This Week in Cycling History. Now, we have here... Um in this present day, an assumption that British riders can rule the world, you know, we get, we hear talk of Sky making racing boring by being so excellent, but this was a time when, aside from Tommy Simpson, it was very, very rare to see a British rider win, and Hoban beat the best of the best here, a wonderful win. Yeah, very much so, I, I, he was, um, yeah, he, he was kind of, uh, you know, not on his own, but very much isolated as a Brit in the in the in the vastly European peloton, you know, dominated by by Belgians. Like the, all of, I think pretty much all of the big names I mentioned in the breakaway that he was in, I think they were actually all Belgian, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know he was there pretty much fending for himself, and um, yeah, yeah, to, to win was 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 really really impressive. And actually, I had this other interesting quote. Um, that uh, I didn't put in the piece. It was it was about um, him winning and not getting recognition. He says, uh, 
My, my one big regret is not the question of money, although I could have made a lot of money today, but the fact that I am not known for what I did over there. No one knows who the hell Barry Hoban was. It would be nice to be known for what I did for the sport and not pushed into oblivion as if I didn't count. When I go back to the continent, it's like the return of the prodigal son. I go to the Ghent Six and straight away everyone says, ah, Barry's here. It's a nice feeling. Over here in Britain, it's, so you rode the Tour de France a few years ago. So hot. Which, which is kind of tragic, really, that that's the way he, 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 he sees himself and, and he th- he, people view him. That, that was a quote from um, a book called Rural Britannia, written by William Fotheringham, which kind of chronicles, um, it, it's, it's, pretty, it's specifically Brit- how British writers got on in the Tour de France, but it does, uh, you know, spread a little bit into the classics and, and how writers um, kind of embedded themselves in the peloton. But there's a bit, good bit about Barry Hoban in there. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was, um, you know, it's, it's really sad that, that that's the way um, he, he seems to think people view him. I don't know whether it's actually the way people view him. I, I must confess to not knowing a whole lot about him. Um, I mean, I, I, I know a bit about him because I've, I mean, I've chatted to my, my chum Tony Hewson about, you know, that era because Tony went across and, and rode the Tour de France. But, I mean, if for Hoban, one of the, the interviews he did after the race, I think the newspaper commented how good his Flemish was. So I'm surprised he hasn't, you know, bought a wee smoky bar somewhere in, in Flanders and set up over there. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. He certainly seems to be more appreciated over there. And and something else to say about uh, Hoban not being recognised. I, I think, you know, maybe, maybe he's not recognised, you know, for his achievements, but what he actually did for... Um, British sport or British, British cycling um, is still kind of it, it, the fruits are being born at the moment you know like riders like him and Tom Simpson and there's, a, there's another couple of guys Brian Robinson and um, there's another guy Michael Wright who sounds very British but he was actually quite Belgian but but anyway so, the, so the, these guys were like the you know they paved the way and they did it the hard way like they went over with no money they, they with, with no ability to speak French or, or, or Flemish or anything. And, and, you know, they really, really did it the hard way. But now, you know, writer, British writers can still do it the hard way. It, you know, there is that still that route. But now, obviously, they've got Team Sky and there's a number of, of continental level teams. And there is this path that's, it's not easy, but it's, uh, it's, it's organised um, into the top level of the sport, and it's it's very easy now for for British cyclists, you know, you you know, youngsters, thirteen, fourteen, getting into racing and saying, yeah, yeah, I like, I want to win, I want to win the world championships like Tom Simpson, I want to win Gent Wevelgem like Barry Hoban, and if mm-hmm. if there is no history of cycling in your country, I think it's very like in Ireland, obviously, it's oh yeah, I want to be the next Kelly, the next Roach, and it it's. Uh, if that doesn't exist, it's very, very difficult to encourage kids, I'd say, into this sport because there is no history. Like, how how do you encourage a a Bulgarian to pick up a bike? You know, where where's the where's the incentive to say, look, this 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 is this is achievable, and mm-hmm. and, and I think you know for Barry Hoban for, for for all the recognition that he didn't get in his day, you know, he he, he deserves to to. To take a little bit of, of, of Team Sky's success and, and take it as as uh, as his own because uh, you know it it was certainly made easier for what guys like him did. See, I'm actually I'm, I'm I mentioned my chum Tony Houston um, a, a few minutes ago. I'm going to take this opportunity to plug one of his books. Um, 
regular listeners to the VeloCast will know that Tony was the, the winner of the 1955 Tour of Britain. And he wrote a book called In Pursuit of Stardom, uh, which the subtitle is uh, Les Nomades du Vélo Anglais. And it was about how they took a, an old war ambulance and, and went to be professional cyclists in France and ended up riding the Tour and everything. So, I mean, that, that's redolent at that time. So give that a read. Yeah, I know, I, I definitely will. Maybe it's in that box of tricks you've been waiting to send me, I'm not sure. No, it is indeed. <laughs> oh, very good. I know, I'll definitely pluck a couple of stories out of that. And and one other thing I was going to say about this race in particular, the 1974 Gent-Wevelgem, was that uh, there's another quote I have from, from Hoban at the end of the race when he was interviewed. He said, I must admit, I made the most of the others doing all the work. I didn't feel too good at the start, but everything went well. And at the end, I knew I was in form. And when I'm in form, I can beat anyone in the sprint. And... and uh, I just thought that was interesting because there was a great piece that Edward Pickering wrote and he put online. He's, he's the uh, deputy editor of Cycle Sport magazine, but he put he put this up online and it was about uh, Gerald Chilek sitting in at the back of the Milan-San Remo group and not doing any work and, mm-hmm. and, and nipping past for the win and whether this was a legitimate thing to do. And, and essentially, Barry Hoban has admitted that he did the same thing. And, and uh, I, I'm not sure where you where your opinion lies on this but i i think it's completely legitimate like if you're you know barry hoban clear i mean look at the names in that list you know Merckx, de vlamink van springle Godfrey, you know uh, freddie martins you know these guys mm. <laughs> i think you can be you, you could expect them to do the, the work you know I, I and if if you're a guy who they think isn't going to feature then definitely i think it's up to them to get rid of you or it's up to them to say well you know if you're not riding, we're not riding, and then it all kind of comes together again. But if they're willing to take you to the finish, then by all means, you should take advantage of that. And uh, like, uh, but I, I, I put a caveat on that by saying that uh, if you're going to do that, like the next time Gerald Chielek finds himself in a six or seven man lead group, you know, I, I think people's uh, attitudes towards him will be quite different. And you know, if you're going to to wheel suck and, and take advantage of it. You, you know, you need to be prepared to face the consequences as well. But as a tactic, yeah, I, I think. <laughs> Not completely. I mean, you know, these guys are paid to win races. You know, there's, there's no prize for being the hardest working person in a break. Um, you know, the prize is for the guy who crossed first. They're professionals. He did the job. And Hoban did exactly what he's like. Because, you know, why would you tow, tow Eddie Merckx and Roger DeVlamek to the finish line? Exactly. Seriously. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and now... Now Barry Hoban is the winner of Gant Wevelgem and, you know, nobody really remembers that he was not contributing to the break, you know, and, and, and these things do get forgotten and your your name stays on the winner's list. So I, Gerald Chilek doesn't care about Peter Sagan's feelings, you know, so. No. But um, it, 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 one of the things actually that, that um, kind of as an extension of, of that of being underappreciated in Britain, another story from that uh, William Fotheringham book is um, about uh, when... Barry Hoban used to return to Britain for some races, you know, you know, like uh, just kind of local criterium races and that, and that uh, he used to run into serious problems with the local riders and that they'd all pretty much gang up on him. And there would be a criterium with, with you know, 70, 80 riders and 50 of them would be conspiring against Hoban so that he wouldn't win. You know, oh, who's this, 
you know, Jack the lad coming back from Europe thinks he's brilliant, you know, let's show him. And, mm-hmm. and, and that uh, eventually Hoban got, and, and actually the same thing used to happen. I, I know there's, there's a, a famous story that that happened with uh, Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach. They came back to Criteriums as, as a, kind of a week-long circuit around Dublin and Cork, and I think there was one in, in Sean Kelly's hometown as well. And, and that the same story, you know, the local guys trying to get one over on the pros, and, you know, they think they can go back here and boss us around, well, we'll show them. And um, mm-hmm. eventually it got to Hoban, and he said, uh, I've had enough, I'm not racing in Britain anymore. And and he didn't for a good few years. They eventually convinced him to come back three or four years later. But, yeah, after what he said... Fact this, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting up with that. Like I'm not, so I'm not doing it. Yeah, I mean, he had, he had a decent, a decent Palmares as well. You know, he won, uh, he won stages of the tour quite regularly, and he was, he was one of those riders who was really strong out of a, a small group. In fact, he said, you, you know, I think you say in the piece that uh, he said that you know he had three children at home, which I thought was a bit baffling until I realised he was talking about he didn't want to take too many risks yeah, because yeah. of the kids at home. There's a funny story as well, which actually maybe I'll leave it for another week because it's quite interesting and it could, could be a snippet in itself. But it, it involved um, uh, after the day after Tom Simpson died at the tour it involved um, a kind of an argument over who would wi- who would be allowed win the following stage in the same way Armstrong was allowed win the stage after Fabio Castro mm-hmm. oh, no, sorry that's not true I don't, I don't think Armstrong was allowed win but the, the, that was a few days later but Motorola were allowed cross the the finish line you know you know these kind of orchestrated finishes the same thing happened when Wilder Whelan died in the Giro and anyway there was a little bit of an argument between um uh, Jean Slavinsky and Vin Denson and, and Barry Holden. But yeah, I, I think I'll save that for another day. But, but um, the the the, uh, the um, sorry, one of the one of the other things I was going to say was that um, his his finish line celebration was was great. He just, Carry on. Yeah, he he used to, he had this amazing celebration, and I'm sure he did he, he did do it in that Gent Welfare. There's footage of him on, on YouTube of him doing it. But it, pretty much every photo you see of him crossing the line. Uh, winning race, he, he didn't actually raise his arms in victory. He he just kind of he 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 almost locked his arms down onto the drops and just lifted his head as far as it would go while his head while his arms were still on the drops and just ye- yelled out a big scream. And uh, it was just uh, you know with an arched back with his chest puffed out forward. It was, it was just uh, unique, I'd say, in in terms of finish line celebrations. It was ugh, I thought it was great. No, I mean it made for some cracking pictures. You know, he he looks like a, a you know some bird puffing his chest out for a mate or something. Yeah. And, and, uh, sorry, just before we move on, I, I was just, I was, something that came to mind and it slipped out of the way was um, that uh, I, I just I wonder why he wasn't given this recognition that he craved by the sounds of things that you know. And and I guess it has to do with you know you know like Tom Simpson obviously did get the recognition but you know he wore the yellow jersey which is iconic and you know I think everybody understands what the yellow jersey even if you're not a cycling fan you, you, you know you know what the yellow jersey is and I, I guess I can't speak for people who who were you know sports fans in in the sixties and seventies but I, I I'm guessing it was the same that you know the yellow jersey Tour de France yeah I understand that and then if you say like Tom Simpson won the World Championships as well and if you tell anybody oh, I'm the World Champion at that sport. You don't really have to understand what it took to become world champion. That's mm-hmm. you, you get it. Like, okay, world champion. Yeah, I understand that. Whereas if if you go back home to someone and you say, "Oh, I won Gent Wevelgem," like, okay, that's great. You know what the hell is Gent Wevelgem? And and how do you, you know, it's kind of I suppose it's kind of difficult to explain the difference between Gent Wevelgem and any other race between two towns in Belgium. You know why is Gent Wevelgem special? 
I, I mean, you, you and I know why, but, mm-hmm. you know, I guess to, to the wider public, you know, that's, you know, world champion versus winning Kent Welcome. There's a bit of a gap in, in recognition there that, that uh, probably caused a problem for Hope in getting the recognition that he wanted. No, I think you're right. I mean, it was very much a niche sport. I've got, I've got three things to say before we move on to, to a piece about Long Jalabert. Um, one of which is, you've completely ruined the sport for me, mate. I was watching uh, the E3 Harold Becker yeah. on a, a Sporza feed during the week, and one of the commentators was Eddie Planker. <laughs> oh, dear. And uh, all, all I could think about was that picture and that, that rather disturbing session we had a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. But uh, <laughs> the next one is, when I was l- reading about uh, Hoban's win, I found an article from a 2009 edition of Cycling Weekly. Um, and they had a kind of what else was in Cycling Weekly on you know that week in 1974. Yeah. And there were, there were two names that sprung out. One was that Victoria Pendleton's dad won the Archer Spring Road Race. Um. But the one that all really, really got to me is that Pat McQuaid won the Dillon Memorial Road Race in County Wicklow. Yeah, yeah. So you know, familiar names even back then. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I saw that article as well. It's it's interesting. I I like when um when they do that, they kind of dip into the archives and and uh, yeah, kind of obviously enough to enjoy that type of thing. But uh, yeah, I thought that that was an interesting article as well. Um, worth looking up. Anyway, let's move on to when uh, French cycling was at top of the world. In the year 2000, a French rider led cycling's top world rankings for the last time. That rider was Laurent Jalabert, who, apart from a stint in second place during 1998, had been world number one for five years running. He began his run at the top of world cycling in 1995, which was the most successful year in his career. He won the Vuelta, finished fourth in the Tour and won the Green Jersey. He won the Criterium International, Volta Catalunya and Paris-Nice, as well as Flesh Wallon and Milan San Remo. Not since Sean Kelly ten years earlier had a rider dominated races of such a wide variety. When asked what the best moment of his year was, Jalabert replied, It's hard to choose the best moment, but I would select two. Emotionally, Milan San Remo was the best moment, while the Tour of Spain was the biggest victory. But you could see it coming every day. It was a huge satisfaction, but emotionally, it's more powerful to win a classic. A lot of thoughts go through your head. The difficult moments you've had, the toughness of the course. I had so much trouble the year before, which made it even more important. And when asked about comparisons with Kelly and Eno, Jalabert replied, I'm satisfied, flattered. If people compare you to the great champions, you can't not be happy about it. But I have no pretensions. I don't set out to be compared to one rider or another. The aim is to get as much out of it and to enjoy myself as much as possible. I know that when things aren't going well, no one gives out any presents. So when it is going well, you have to take advantage of it. The key thing is that it's just one season, which can't be compared with a career like that of Merckx, Kelly or Eno. People confuse the two, but it's just one season. But Jalabert's success continued through the following years, where he added another Flesh Wallon, the Tour of Lombardy, a couple more Paris-Nices, a time trial rainbow jersey, and lots of stages of various races all over Europe. But when Francesco Casagrande finally overtook Jalabert at the top of the UCI's rankings in May of 2000, it was the end of an era for Jalabert, and by extension, France, at the top of world cycling. Jalabert had, by and large, been single-handedly upholding the honour of his nation with his victories, thereby masking the underperformance of the majority of his compatriots. Jalabert remains the last French rider to top a UCI ranking of any description, the last Frenchman to win a Grand Tour, and the last French rider to win a Monument Classic. 
A timely piece, that, Killian, because uh, was it last week or the week before, Jalabert was, was run over and knocked off his bike, so uh, good to chat about the good times when he's, you know, when he's been injured recently. Yeah, well, I, like, I know, I think we chatted about Jalabert recently enough, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we put in a story about him, and, and uh, he, he, he mentioned that his whole outlook on racing changed after he had that big crash in the Tour de France in 1994 with Wilfred Nelson and um, yeah like it, it obviously played on his mind and actually it's it's kind of reflected in a reflection of what Barry Hoban said as well that he's you know he's got three kids at home and I, I'm not willing to, to to do this mental sprinting anymore and uh, yeah it's just you know r- riders realise the res- you know the responsibility they have to their families and and, and uh aren't willing to take any risks anymore or as many risks anymore which is completely understandable but I, I kind of put this piece in not really to talk about Laurent Jalabert because we did that recently but to uh, kind of talk about French cycling um, more in general uh, and uh, I, I wrote this actually obviously before Sylvain Chavanel took over the race lead of or not the race lead the, the lead in the world tour points so Chavanel has actually been been leader of a of the world rankings which is the first time since Laurent Jalabert in 2000. Mm-hmm. And um, he, I, I don't think he's leading anymore. I think Peter Sagan... No, it's like, Peter Sagan now, yeah. Yeah, it was only for a week or so that Chevenel took over the lead. But, like, you know, I, I, it just got me thinking, like, uh, about the state of French cycling. And, and I, I was actually... Maybe I was a little bit harsh in, in the um, in the piece I said that uh, Jalabert had, had been single-handedly representing French cycling, which was probably a little bit dramatic. You know, they're, they're, he, his contemporaries... And his compatriots, were, you know, there were, he, he did have some good ones. Like there was Christophe Moreau was always good for a stage race win. And, and he, he challenged in the Tour de France for a while. He came fourth one year. And then obviously there was Richard Varanc, finished on the podium at the Tour a couple of times. Won, won. He, Richard Varanc didn't actually win that many races. He, I don't think he ever won a stage race. Housewife's favourite. Housewife's favourite, yeah. Tricky dicky. I mean, he did what he did and he, he made his career off the back of the polka dot jersey wins, which, you know, and, and doping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But anyway, and but 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 you know there was there was other riders like Frederick Moncassin was he 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 won a few a few Tour de France stages in the sprint and there was mm-hmm. Jackie Durand won the Tour of Flanders and anyway anyway so there was there was other guys but in general when it came to the the really really uh, cream of the crop Laurent Jalabert was was out in his own as a as a French rider and um, there's a, there's always this uh, this uh, I don't I wouldn't call it a myth but this impression that people have that. Uh, now French cyclists are coming to the fore again, and, and you know they're they're doing quite well. Like Thibaut Pinot is a youngster; he won a stage in the Tour last year. Pierre Roland has won a stage the last mm-hmm. couple of years, and he, he he's in with a good chance of a high overall position. Uh, the French current French champion is Nasser Bouhani; he's winning sprints. Tommy um, Vercler was you know active uh, over, over the last week. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously he had a great Tour de France a couple of years ago when he he almost finished on the podium. He he almost won it really mm-hmm. with a couple of days to go. And there's this there's other guys like Arno Demer is a great sprinter. There's a guy called Warren Barg Barguil. I I don't know how to pronounce it, but Barg Barguil. Uh, he's on Argos Shimano. He won the Tour de l'Avenir last year, and mm-hmm. he he's tipped for the top. And anyway, so there's all these French guys coming through. And the impression that people have is that because French guys are doing well again, is that the peloton is cleaner. And um, I, I just maybe I, I find that quite interesting. And, and I just wonder whether it's true. And I, I, I think it's quite easy to I think it's too easy to generalize and say that because there have been French guys 
being caught doping. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are there are two opposing views to that. Um, one of which is that because you know the French police are the people who tended to pull the drugs raids. Yeah, doping's taken far more seriously in France. So you know, by extension, the French peloton are cleaner. Uh, but you also have Bernardino, who essentially just said, look, current French riders, and this is five years ago before the, the current resurgence, if you like, yeah. he just said French riders are just lazy. Um, so um, I think other people are confused. It's not just you and I. Well, well, I do think there's a certain element of truth to, to the fact that French cycling got cleaner because uh, unlike other countries, um, it's illegal to, to do this in France. You, you know, you can get put in jail for, mm-hmm. for doping, and and that became apparent after the tour in nineteen ninety eight, when it, when there was a lot of cyclists spent time in in prison, not, not not a whole lot of time, but a little bit of time, and and um, you you know, uh, and actually, I think it's a misconception as well that they made it illegal after the tour in nineteen ninety eight, but it was actually slightly before the tour in nineteen ninety eight that they made uh, doping an a, a, a criminal offence in France, mm-hmm. and and you know. It, there was a lot more pressure on French teams and cyclists to clean up after 1998. You know, after 1998, the it didn't suddenly become uh, EPO was still undetectable. So for other teams, uh, you know, the risk was still the same in getting caught. In in that they, they you couldn't get caught, mm-hmm. but if you were caught with the drug on you, in France you'd go to jail, whereas in other countries you wouldn't. So there was much more pressure on French cyclists and teams to clean up. And, and I, you know, I, I think there is evidence that by and large they, they did, uh, you know, a, a lot of them did. And I think um, uh, I, I read this article recently where um, it, it became very apparent that, uh, you know, Jonathan Waters as a director sportif, he, he's kind of um, the leading light, I suppose, of speaking out against doping, and and his whole team's philosophy. I I know I know they have a lot of ex-dopers, and he himself is an ex-doper, but he he pushes this philosophy that uh, you know if we win, great. If we don't, uh, that's okay. But but by an, but you know by God, we're going to play by the rules, mm-hmm. and you know as long as we play by the rules, you know that's okay with me, and it's okay with the sponsors, and. Uh, I read an interview, or I mean, I don't think it was an interview. It was just a, um, a, an article written by Waters himself, where uh, he speaks about his manager at Roger, at, at Credit Agricole, who was Roger Leger, and he very much had the exact same attitude. You know, he said to his riders, you know, just don't dope. You know, we'll play by the rules. If you win, you win. If you don't, it's fine. And and uh, that's almost exactly. Waters' philosophy now. So, like, he learned that while he was on a French team. But then, on the flip side, like you say, um, Bernardino uh, whinging about the state of French cycling. Like, I do wonder whether French cyclists have used this as an excuse, and that it's very easy for them to use it as an excuse. That you know, this cyclism uh, uh, du vitesse, you know, the the cycling, the two speed cycling, and that other countries are still doping and we are not. And how can we expect it to be expected to compete? And on a certain level, you know. That, that that applies, I think. But then there, I, I'm sure there are riders that that use that as an easy way out for their own lack of success. I mean, we've seen as well that um, you know the very top French teams, uh, Europcar, for example. Yeah, Europcar could easily take the step up and be a world tour team, but there, there does seem to be something holding them back a wee bit. So I, I don't know if that's part of the same attitude. Well, that might just be money, of course. Well, I I, I do I do have this um, thought of. 
about uh, the, the the strategies of of French teams, and there's two two teams in particular. One is one is your car, I like to say, and the other is AG Two R. And I just I I uh, I think one of them has a much better strategy than the other. Your car uh, don't seem to. I, I mean, obviously they made the decision to drop to Pro Continental um, mm. a few years ago. They they um they could have applied for a world tour license and they they may have got it they they probably would have i i'm not sure anyway you know they might have but they said you, you know what we don't need it we're going to go we're going to drop down to pro continental we're going to do our thing we'll we'll, we'll we know we're going to get guaranteed in an invite to the tour de france which is the most important thing for us so that so that's okay and you know if we get invited to other races that's great but you know we're going to just do what we do if we win that's fine. If we don't, we don't have the pressure of trying to gain these ridiculous world tour points uh, and this crazy system that nobody understands to tr- to be at the top level. And AG Tour is just completely different. They're they're like the opposite. They have they 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 will do anything it takes to to get the points necessary to stay in the world tour. And that and that was kind of typified by their recruitment strategy over the last couple of years. They you know they hired these. Uh, they, you know they hired these guys from countries like Iran and and um I can't remember where else they got riders from some a good few riders from the Asian um circuit and you know that that really we're never really going to be up to scratch in the world tour races and and they only recruited them for their points so that they could get guaranteed into the world tour and then there was the story of uh, Stephen Hunard who admitted that he. He uh, he got caught for taking EPO, I think, of all things. Mm-hmm. That's kind yeah. of old school at this stage. Uh, towards the back end of last year, and he admitted that he was he was doing it so that he could get some points in. Uh, I think it might have been the Tour of Beijing uh, to to get a contract for for next year. And you know, if that's if that's the recruitment policy of AG Two or you know that that just encourages all of the wrong behaviour that we'd expect of our cyclists these days. Whereas Europe Car is the opposite. And it really, you know, it doesn't encourage doping in any way. At least, you know, to to, to fans anyway, that's the way it seems. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, you know, I really, um, I think I think AG2R sh- sh- is a, it's just a bad strategy they've got. I think. I'd, I'd completely agree. Now, I'm going to move on, and we're going to move on to somebody we've already mentioned, um, and a race that's happening as we speak. Actually, the Criterium International. And we're going to take a step back to 1981 and have a chat about Bernardino. In 1981, Bernardino became the first rider to win all three stages of the Criterium International. The Criterium International has not always borne the name it currently carries. When it was first organised back in 1932, it was known simply as the Criterium National, and as such it was only open to French riders. The first edition, a 207km one-day race, was won by the Breton rider Léon Lecalvez. The race would remain a one-day affair until 1963, when it became three stages, all raced in a single day. Thereafter, some editions reverted back to the one-day format, until eventually, in 1978, it settled on the three stages over two days format for which it is now known. It was also 1978 when the race opened its doors to riders of all nationalities, as long as they were riding for a French team. And the following year, there were no restrictions at all on teams or nationalities, and the race was won immediately by a non-Frenchman, Joop Zoutemelk of the Netherlands. The following three years saw French riders reclaim the race as their own, despite the presence of many a Johnny Foreigner. And one of those years was 1981, when Bernardino dominated the race, although it wasn't without incident. The race took place in the VAR region, as it had done since all comers were welcomed in 1979. 
and the first stage, as usual, was a flat affair. Eno immediately asserted his dominance and duly won the bunch sprint into Saint-Tropez. But on the second stage, a 91-kilometre affair on the morning of the second day, along came a potential gatecrasher in the form of British rider Graham Jones. Having finished with the same time as Eno on stage one, Jones attacked on the hilly stage two, and Eno could not or would not respond. Jones began opening up a potential race-winning gap alone up front. Jones was full of confidence, having recently finished second overall at the five-stage Tour de Mediterranean. If he could get to the finish with a gap over Eno, he was sure he could seal the overall win in the final time trial. After all, in the Caldez time trial at the Tour de Mediterranean, Jones had also finished in second place, beating Eno into third place. But on the descent of the penultimate climb, a camera motorbike failed to negotiate a bend and crashed right in the line of Jones. The rider from Cheadle could do nothing and crashed also. Suffering from cuts and bruises, Jones was helpless as he watched the race, including Eno, pass him by as he remounted his bike. The race split apart further before the finish and Eno won a two-up sprint against compatriot Jacques Bossis. The Badger followed that in the afternoon by winning the time trial and sealing the overall victory. He remains the only rider ever to have won the Criterium International as world champion. There's a career that's full of superlatives and unique things, isn't there? I mean, Bernardino, he's, uh, he's one of my favourite riders. And I've always enjoyed the Criterium International, actually. It's a, a race that I think harks back to an, an earlier style of racing. But, um, you know, I, I didn't know the stat that he was the only person, you know, even now to have won it as world champion. Yeah, I, I, I love that stuff. I love uh, I love stats like that. And uh, it was it came up in Balance San Remo recently as well. The last guy to win that as world champion was Giuseppe Soroni in 1983. So that's... That's going back a long time as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, like you said, the Criterium International is due to finish today and uh, Philippe Gilbert is not in it, so it's not going to happen this year. But, um, uh, yeah, like uh, like you say, it harks back to, to a, a bygone era. And I think that the split stage really does that for me as well. It's a real uh, old school thing to do is to have two stages in a day. And actually, they, they used to have, like I said, they used to have three stages in a day. And I think they did that in the Tour de France a couple mm-hmm. of times back in the maybe maybe it was in the sixties. They used to have th- three stages in a single day, which is yeah. Of, the riders don't like that. No, <laughs> I, I, I'm not surprised it's not really a thing anymore. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was great that you know Bernardino was capable of of winning these three stages and and uh, you know it gets you thinking about who 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 else would be capable of doing it. And and we, you know we already spoke about Lauren Jalabert. Uh, earlier and you know he he would would have been a, a guy that was certainly capable of doing it and he almost did it in in uh, in 1995 he won two of the stages and he finished on the podium of the time trials and he, he won the race overall but he you know he almost won the three and and mm-hmm. sean kelly is the, the he's the only other rider that's ever done this he did it in 1984 when he was winning everything and uh so him and bernardino are the only two guys who have won all three stages and i just um i, I just i wonder off the current peloton is, is there anybody who who can do it? Well, I, bet, I bet we're both going to say the same name, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, but, we're both going to say Peter Sagan. Yeah, yeah, but like, I I I don't know. Like, maybe 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 we're being a bit harsh on all the other riders that have come in between. I don't, I don't know. I mean, like maybe Bradley Wiggins could do it if he if he put his mind to it. Like he he won a sprint in the Tour de Romandie last year. He, mm-hmm. he can obviously win the time trial, and you know he, he he's just he he, he seems to be. Actually, I don't know whether Wiggins has ever won a mountain stage of anything. Although I, you wouldn't really call the the stage in Criterium International a mountain stage; it's a hilly no, stage. Which it's a yeah, hilly stage. Yeah, he 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 could win it. Yeah, he 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 could probably win all three. But definitely Peter Sagan. 
And and I, I kind of feel sorry for Peter Sagan, you know. I mean, he's racking up all these second places this year. Like, he finished second in Manson Ramo. He finished second in uh, the E3 prize. He finished second in the Stradibianchi. And, uh, you know, everyone is like, when is he going to win his... When is he going to win his first classic? When is he going to win his first classic? He's only 23, yeah. you know. And, and like, Sean Kelly didn't win a classic until he was 27. Philippe Gilbert didn't win one until he was 27. I think Jalabert, he was maybe 25 or 26 when he won Milan San Remo. You know, he's still got plenty of years on these guys. And, uh, I think the problem is he's such an extravagant talent. You know, you expect so much of him. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, I, did you actually read? There was a quote, a, a, there was a typo in it, and I can't decide if the typo was from the, the person who typed it into Twitter or, or whether it was Sagan's English. But he said, you know, I really feel that it is my density to win the Tour of Flanders. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I don't know whether you know Back to the Future, but that's a real quote from Back to the Future is, <laughs> you, you are my density. But um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that was a typo either, but it, it's a, it's an unfortunate faux pas if, if that's what he did say. Um, but like, I, I, I remember saying um, when when Sagan was winning stages in the Tour de France last year and he was doing all his finish line celebrations. I think his finish line celebrations are great. I, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a young guy. He's enjoying himself. It's brilliant. But I do remember thinking at the time that uh, if, if I was one of his rivals, I would be pretty annoyed at this. Like, I, you know, he's not disrespecting me or... or or you, but you know, if 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 I'm if I'm one of his rivals, I'd look at this guy and like this twenty-two-year-old guy. You know, who does, who does he think he is? You, you know, doing stupid finish line celebrations. You know, I've busted a gut trying to win this race, and he's up there mocking me. And mm-hmm. and if it was me, that's the way I would feel. And I think Fabian Cancellara might have said something to this effect in the last couple of weeks. Like, oh, he I, did. He definitely did. Yeah, and and you know, like obviously pe- people are going to try and beat Sagan anyway, but. You know, playing in the back of people's minds that, you know, this guy has disrespected me in the past. It's not going to help him, I don't think. And, uh, I, I mean, uh, he, he's probably too strong to for, for it to make a difference. But, you know, may, I, I just I wonder in the future if it's ever going to make a difference where a writer is going to look at him and say, I'm not helping you. You know, you, you know, you, 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 uh, you. <laughs> You, you did those stupid finish line celebrations. I didn't like that, so I'm not helping you. I, I just, I wonder whether, maybe, maybe it's only a small thing, but if it was me, I, I would be pretty annoyed at that. But, um, it, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It probably won't matter. He, he He's strong enough to do to do whatever he wants anyway. Well, I mean, obviously he isn't. He hasn't been winning. But uh, I, I, just going back to what I said at the start, I do, I do feel sorry for him. I, I think, I mean, it's only a matter of time. He's definitely going to win one eventually, but I, it's it's harsh on him that he's a victim of his own success so far. That it's a, I mean, he he has lost Milan San Remo, he lost the E3 Prize. You know, he lo- you know, he's that's the headline already, which is crazy for a guy who's so young. I mean, I I, I remember ha- having a, a little exchange with yourself and others on Twitter last week about whether there has ever been a favorite for a monument classic. Uh, such an overwhelming favourite for a Monument Classic who had never won a Monument Classic before. And that's that's the situation Sagan found himself in last weekend at Milan San Remo. It was unbelievable. I tell you what might stand him in good stead, actually. I would. I mean, you know, I've never placed a bet in my life, which is, is quite ironic since you work within the, the industry. Yeah. Um, but I was having a look at the odds, and after uh, Cancellara's wonderful win, beautifully taken win in the, the E3, um, Sagan's only second favourite now, so that might actually stand him in good stead, and uh, you know, in Flanders next week. 
Second favourite for Flanders or second favourite for, yeah, well, no. for Flanders? Yeah, for Flanders. Well, as a man who works in the betting industry, I can tell you now that any bet on cycling is a bad bet. <laughs> the Too odds, many variables. Oh, the odds are terrible. Like for a sport that you can just, you can literally just be expunged at any stage. You can just fall over at any point in the race. Like Sagan, I think he was six to four to win Milan Sanremo last week. Like that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I just think it's, it's, yeah, for so many, like just apart from the fact that you can crash at any moment, the amount of tactical things that can occur during race. It's not just a horse race where you're running from one point to another. Yeah, you know. Anyway, I I just think betting on cycling is is a is a bad idea. To, to well, I I, I can confirm that because I mean clearly, you and I know a fair bit about cycling, um, and I am possibly the worst fantasy cycling manager ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm just terrible at it. Now, yeah. the other person who popped up in that story who I think is vaguely interesting is uh, is Graham Jones, who's heavily involved with the Tour of Britain these days. Yeah, I and and this I mean I'd say I don't know. Graham Jones's Palmeiras off by heart, but I'd imagine if he had won this, I'd say it probably would have been the biggest win in his career. Oh, by far, absolutely yeah. by far. And I mean, he's—I uh, think he, he won the Grand Prix de Nation, um, and I think I think that's probably it, other than you know some stuff in Britain. Yeah, I think he was also he was nearly top ten in um, oh Lombardia, so he, he's a good solid kind of mid-range pro. I think would be the best way to describe him. Yeah, he he actually he won the mountains classification in that race, the Criterium International, which was scant consolation considering he he should have won it really. But yeah, he won he won the 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 mountains jersey, which was which was something. But uh, yeah, I I just um, I I I don't know whether to feel um, I don't know again one of these tactical things that happened in a race about how you feel about it. Whether you know Bernardino and the rest of them should have waited for him. I mean, he he wasn't in the leaders jersey. So you know the, the 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 report of the race that I read said that Eno cycled past him smiling, when when Jones was on the ground picking himself up and Eno was in the group that was that was going on to contest the the, the finish, and uh, you know Eno obviously didn't care. He was like you you fell over that's your own fault, and uh, you know he he went on to win. Whereas Jones was I I don't know whether he was of the opinion that they should have waited. There was no mention of that, but uh, I kind of don't think they should have. No, I don't think they should have. And I think, you know, it was, you know, it was early enough that uh, I think Jones was probably seen as an English interloper. You know, the, I don't think they were fully embraced to the, the church of the peloton at that point. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, a bit, bit, bit of the Barry Hoban attitude, I'd say. So that's uh, a show about the races that have happened this week. It's quite exciting, again, to be at a point where we can talk about stuff that actually happened this week in cycling history, as opposed to having to cast about. Um, we've got the Tour of Flanders next week. So, I mean, there's going to be some uh, some fantastic stuff to talk about there. And you're recording a, a piece specifically for our, our premium shows, the subscription shows that we do. But in the meantime, where can people find you on Twitter, Gillian? Um, I'm at Irish Peloton, and if you want to email me, it's just mail at irishpeloton.com. And just one other thing I'd say before we go, I have a f- I'm have not entirely certain, but I have a feeling that today, uh, this is Sunday, just before Gant Revagum that we're recording, I think it's the busiest day on the cycling calendar of the year. No, there's huge like, amounts going on. There's a Tour in Normandy, um, Trofeo Binda. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, assuming they go on with the weather. I'm yeah. really worried about having to do, you know, do a, a sledging competition down the Ude Quermont next week if the race is cancelled. Yeah, and, and I think we mentioned it before. Like, you, you know, these all add up. Like, Kern Brussel Kern getting cancelled. There was another one cancelled. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, you know, Melanson Remo be, being devastating to people's health, I'd imagine. Like, that, that's all going to 
stack up and have an effect on these things. But yeah, the, the busy day, it's it's like Kent Wevelgum, Criterium International is finishing, the Tour of Catalonia is finishing, go on Dan Martin. The tour, mm-hmm. the tour of Normandy is coming to an end. The tour of Taiwan, which is a a a, a two point two race, is finished this morning. And um, there's a race in Portugal finishing today, and then there's a copy of Bartoli race, which is finishing in Italy today. It's mental. It's 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 very hard to keep track of what's going on. But yeah, so um, I hope everybody enjoys it. And just one Irish sneaky thing at the end: there's a race called the Des Hanlon Memorial going on today in Carlo, which is probably uh, the biggest one day race of the year in Ireland. Well, thanks again, Kelly. Great conversation. I, I thought we'd go by with only Sean Kelly as the Irish content, but you slipped it in there at the end. Actually, I mentioned Pat McQuaid as well, so I'm to blame. Um, you can find me at WJohnGalloway on Twitter, um, and you can find details of all our shenanigans on velocast.cc. And thanks for listening.